Well, let me begin by telling you a story this morning, a story of two ladies. Before they lost their husbands, Jennifer and Katie lived in the same neighborhood, they attended the same church, and they had been friends for many years. Their husbands died at about the same time, but the circumstances surrounding their deaths were very different. Jennifer's husband died from cancer. The illness was discovered about a year before his death, but despite surgery and the best medical treatments available, his his condition deteriorated as the months passed. Jennifer devoted herself to caring for the man to whom she had been married for more than 25 years. And when he was hospitalized, she visited him every day. And when he was at home, uh, she cared for him tenderly, often feeling exhausted from taking care of his every need. During the year of his illness, the couple talked openly and often about death and heaven and the life that they had enjoyed together. They had long discussions about the things that they regretted and the pleasant experiences that they had shared together. It was difficult, but they forced themselves to talk about the coming funeral and how Jennifer would cope being a widow. With reluctance and only at the urging of her children and doctor, Jennifer agreed to let her husband return to the hospital where he spent the final days of his life. Katie and her husband, on the other hand, had no time for similar conversations. Within weeks of his planned retirement, they took a vacation, but Katie's husband suddenly collapsed in a restaurant and was pronounced dead upon arrival at the local hospital. A massive heart attack had taken his life. Now, from the beginning, it was clear to their friends that these two Christian women were handling their grief very, very differently. Jennifer talked freely about her husband, and she admitted her loneliness and the empty heart she now had. It took time, more time than most people expected. But after some time, eventually Jennifer increased the activity of her life. Slowly, she re-engaged the activities at church, even though she didn't feel like participating at first. And she was determined to stay involved in the lives and activity of her kids, and eventually her grandchildren as well. Katie, on the other hand, closed off from people after her husband died. She stopped seeing her friends. She appeared to lose interest in most relationships, even withdrawing from her own kids, who had previously been so central to her daily life. She spent most of her days in front of the television, Feeling depressed, she started to feel swallowed up in in self-pity. After years of being so close to her husband, Katie now concluded that life was no longer worth living and that she would never be happy again. And despite the urgings of her children and her doctor, Katie rarely ate healthy or regular meals, and soon her health began to deteriorate, and two years after her husband died, Katie's heart stopped one night while she slept. She died of a broken heart, her friends and children said at the funeral. Sadly, she also died without joy and without ever saying goodbye. Jennifer and Katie were two good friends who mourned in very different ways. And how they grieved, how they grieved, set two very different trajectories 
for the remaining years of their life. You know, our topic this morning is rarely the stuff of casual conversation or Sunday afternoon barbecues, but it will affect every single one of us at one time or another, probably multiple times throughout our life. And this morning, I want to spend our time talking about grieving. More specifically, I want to talk about how can we, as the church, come alongside and comfort people who are grieving. Maybe they would be friends, or our family, or our neighbors, or our co-workers. People who find themselves in the middle of pain and trauma, feeling overwhelmed and hurting unsure of what to think, what to say, or even what to do. Have you ever considered how frequently the Bible talks about death and loss and grieving? It talks about it a lot. Adam and Eve have a son who was murdered by their other son. Abraham's family splinters, leaving him separated from one of his sons. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and sold into a foreign country as a slave. Job's suffering and losses, they're well known. He lost all of his children, all of his wealth, and even his health deteriorated. Remember, King David lost his best friend Jonathan in a war. He lost an infant son and a couple of his adult children were murdered. Ruth lost her husband and her two sons, and that's just the tip of a much deeper, much larger iceberg. The Bible talks a lot about loss and sorrow and grief, and each of us can readily attest that Jesus' words were true. In this world, you will have trouble. You will experience pain and loss, and disappointment, and grief. And as we continue our study this morning on the life of Elijah, his life and ministry bring us face-to-face with grief and loss. The passage we're looking at this morning describes a heartbreaking story of death and grieving, one which occurred while Elijah was living in the home of the widow in Zarephath. And as we work our way through this passage this morning, I want to draw your attention to four lessons that I think Elijah teaches us, lessons that can help us serve and minister effectively to people around us who might be grieving. So let's turn our attention to 1 Kings 17. We're going to look at verses 17 through 24. Now last week we watched as God led Elijah to Zarephath and then to a chosen widow there. And God put Elijah through a series of tests in that process. Remember that? There was a test of a new location, a test of first impressions, the test of perceived hopelessness, and the test of obedient faith. And through that series of events, the faith of both Elijah and the widow, their faith was stretched and strengthened in the process. They were encouraged And their faith was enlarged as they learned to keep their eyes on the supplier and not on their supplies. And they learned to be faithfully obedient, even when obedience made their life a little bit harder. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to pick up the CD or listen online. 
But for this morning, we're going to pick up right now where the story left off in verse 17. And this is where we find the first of our four lessons, which I will say this way. Anticipate tragedy and grief. That's the first lesson. Anticipate tragedy and grief. Look at verse 17. It says, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. So Elijah has been living in the widow's home for some time. We don't know how long. The Bible doesn't tell us how long he had been there. The verse simply says, sometime later. Most scholars estimate it was probably around two to two and a half years. Now during this time, Elijah had been spending his time, his days and his evenings, with the widow and her son. They were talking, he'd play games, they were laughing together, making memories, and through it all, their friendship had grown strong. You see, the boy had no father, but here was Elijah, a father figure and a role model to him. And Elijah had no family that we know of, but here was a little boy for him to love and spend time with and teach and train, and their friendship grows. And then it happens. After some time, the boy became ill. And his condition got worse and worse until the boy finally died. He stopped breathing. If I were to ask many of you, or if I were to ask how many of you have experienced the loss of someone dear to you, someone you love, maybe it's a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a classmate, a co-worker. How many of you have lost someone close to you? Almost every person within the sound of my voice would raise their hand. Sadly, this experience is common to every one of us. No matter our age, our background, our culture, every one of us has or will experience significant loss and be gripped by the grief that comes with it. One pastor I know reminds his church from time to time that the death rate in this country is still hovering right around 100%. (laughs) Right? Nobody makes it through this life unscathed by death and loss and grief. Nobody. So we would be wise to anticipate tragedy and grief, to prepare for it, plan on it, to think about it, to make ourselves ready. Our second lesson is found in verse 18. And and the second lesson is this, expect emotional outbursts, expect emotional outbursts. Look at verse 18. It says, she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Which really shouldn't be read with that tone of voice at all, right? This woman just lost her son it probably should be read something more like this. What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Probably more like that. This woman comes to Elijah and she's holding her boy in her arms. Her heart is broken under the weight of grief. And and there stands Elijah. And she lets Elijah have it. 
She yells at him. I think tears are streaming down her face. She looks at him with anger and distrust. Look at what you've done, she would say probably through clenched teeth. And she lets Elijah have it, both barrels. Gene Getz, in his book, When the Pressure's On, writes that the widow's reaction, it was predictable. It was to be expected. She's trying to understand why is this happening. And in the middle of this gut-wrenching sorrow and heartbreaking grief, she is looking at the body of her little boy, holding him in her arms. And she's trying to sort out in her mind some kind of an explanation that makes sense as to why this happened. Her mind is probably racing with questions. Would God save her child from the famine only to take his life with an illness? Really? Is God punishing her for the sins in her past? Did Elijah have something to do with this? And the questions begin coming probably faster and faster. Faster than her mind can probably process them. And in an effort to sort it all out, she dumps it on Elijah. And actually accuses him of causing her son's death. She accuses Elijah. Friends, listen. This kind of thing is to be expected. Because people who experience severe and traumatic loss, like this widow did, they are nearly drowning in a torrent of emotion. It floods their system, and most people don't know how to handle all of that at one time. In its earliest stages, the grieving process comes with this tidal wave of sorrow and deep anguish. There's a tsunami of hurt and pain, a flood of confusion and doubt. And at some point, all of that emotion comes gushing out. You reach a point where you can't stop it and you can't restrain it anymore. Many years ago, I had a dream in which my oldest daughter, Rebecca, was a small child. And she was in the hospital, and she was hooked up to all kinds of tubes and wires and monitors, and I didn't know why. And I was scrambling, trying to find Christy, and I couldn't find her, and so I was frantically going from nurse to nurse, trying to find out what was wrong with my little girl. And then I heard Rebecca's heart monitor sound that long, steady tone, indicating a flat line, loss of a heartbeat. And I raced back through the door into her room, but she was gone, and I picked up her little body in my arms, and I just wept. And then I woke up and realized it was just a dream. But the emotion of that experience was so strong, I laid in bed for almost 30 minutes just trying to regain my composure. The nightmare of losing someone that I love left me completely undone. But here's the sobering reality. For this widow holding her little boy in her arms, this was no dream. There was no waking up from this for her. And this torrent of emotion gets unleashed in emotional outbursts. And friends, we should expect that and be and even be understanding 
of it. There is no way around the emotions. We can only go through them. And people might say things, hurtful things, painful things, accusatory things, as that torrent comes gushing out. But this is a normal part of the grieving process. Many of you know C.S. Lewis. He's one of the most outstanding theologians and thinkers of our day. He has plumbed the depths of God more than most of us ever will. And when his wife died, he wrote about his sorrow. And this is what he said rather sharply. He said, don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect that you just don't understand. Now, I suspect in hindsight he might like to take those words back. But in the moment of his grief, that's what came gushing out. Now, when these emotional outbursts occur, and they often will when somebody has experienced traumatic uh, grief, in these moments, do what Elijah did. Nothing. He did nothing. He stayed silent. Somehow, Elijah knew that nothing he could say in that moment would, would be helpful or even soothing to a grieving mother. No words could bring healing in that moment to her broken heart. So he didn't argue with her. He didn't correct her. He didn't try to reason with her. He didn't defend himself when she accused him. And he didn't try to defend God. Elijah was neither bothered nor offended by her outburst. And I'm grateful for that. He wasn't bothered or offended by it. But with a compassionate and understanding heart, Elijah just stayed silent. And we would be wise to follow his example. Friends, listen. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. In these moments, people need our compassion, not our correction. In times of grief, people need our compassion, not our correction. Grieving people just need us to show up. It's what we sometimes call the ministry of presence. And it's vital that we show up, even in those times when we are tempted to keep our distance, maybe because it's awkward or we don't know what to say. And they need us to have a listening ear and a compassionate heart. I have a standard speech that I use when someone is in the middle of grief, and it goes like this. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I don't try to correct theology. I don't try to fix their confusion. I don't try to explain why God would allow something terrible. When their thoughts and emotions come pouring out, raw and unfiltered and oftentimes jumbled up, they don't need to be fixed. People just need to be listened to. Grieving people need our compassion, not our correction. Our third lesson flows right out of the second one. And I'll say it like this. Speak little, speak gently. Speak little, speak gently. Look with me at verse 19. Elijah says to her, give me your son. You know, Elijah stood patiently and compassionately silent as the widow vented. And when she was done, Elijah simply quietly asked 
for the boy's body. Give me your son, he said. Now the text doesn't convey any of Elijah's emotion, but I have to believe there were tears in his eye and probably a tremble in his voice. How could there not be? This was the boy that he had spent so much time with since coming to live in their home, talking and wrestling around and playing games and teaching him new things. And now he's reaching for the little boy's body. And as rugged and as tough a mountain man as Elijah was, I believe he showed amazing gentleness to the widow. When people are grieving, speak little. Don't let the awkwardness of silence kind of push you to start chattering. Yes, the silence will be uncomfortable from time to time, but trying to fill the empty space may lead us to say foolish and hurtful things, and that is far worse for them. And well-meaning people do say foolish and hurtful things to people who are grieving. Again, it's not... uh, bad intention. They're well-intentioned people. But they say things that are hurtful. Need a few examples of this? When people say, everything happens for a reason, that's not helpful. God never gives us more than we can handle. Give thanks in all things. Don't take it so hard. This is probably for the best. God is still on the throne. If you just have enough faith, Life goes on, tomorrow's a new day. You're still young, meaning young enough to get remarried or have another child or start another career. Friends, we need to be careful not to say these kinds of things to someone. And most importantly, most importantly, do not ever say, I know how you feel. Don't ever say that to a grieving person because the truth is, you don't. You just don't. And it's one of the most painful things that a grieving person can hear. So don't rush to fill the silence. Instead, just be present with them. Hug them. Put your arm around them. Put your hand on their shoulder. Hold their hand. Tell them you are sincerely sorry for the loss that they are experiencing. And then let God work in the silence because his spirit can do the work in their spirit that our words could never do. If you feel the need to go one step further, you could tell the person how much they mean to you and that their relationship or friendship with you is so important to you. Why would that be helpful? Because a grieving person often feels disconnected, even disoriented a little bit and unstable now that life has changed so drastically for them. And your quiet and gentle words telling them that you love them and appreciate them will give them a sense of connectedness and kind of a reassurance of stability. Now, look at what Elijah does. Verse 19. It says, He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord my God! Have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? See, Elijah carried the boy up to his room where he undoubtedly had wrestled in prayer often concerning the spiritual lifelessness of his own people, the Israelites. 
Without a doubt, Elijah had been on his knees, probably even on his face before God, pleading with God for mercy for the nation of Israel, pleading with God for forgiveness and grace, pleading that God would revive his people, restore spiritual life to them, raise them from the dead figuratively, and uh, and draw them back to yourself. And so I think it was a natural response for Elijah to bring this boy up into his bedroom and plead with God to revive and restore this boy's life. And that's exactly what Elijah did. And as he did, we learn our fourth and final lesson here, which is express your concerns to God. Express your concerns to God. And here's what I mean by that. Elijah may have stayed silent in the presence of the widow, but he was not silent at all in the presence of God. You see, the tough questions and doubts and fears, they need to be talked about. They need to be voiced. But too often our tendency is to talk about them with the person who's grieving and not with God, and that should be reversed. Elijah knew the widow's doubts and fears were real, but he also knew that this was not the right time to have that conversation with her. And so he took his concerns to the Lord. Verse 20 says, he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? You know, it didn't dawn on me how substantial Elijah's concern was in this regard until I studied this passage. You'll remember that that Israel had turned away from the Lord and followed after the false gods of Ahab and Jezebel. This was the reason Elijah was on the mission he was on, because the people had turned away. God's reputation is at stake. His name is being blasphemed throughout the land. It's being trampled underfoot by common men. And day after day, Elijah is pleading in prayer that Israel would repent and return and be restored for the glory of God's name. And now in this widow's house, Elijah feels a similar threat. This woman has endured the hardships associated with the famine and the drought. And when Elijah showed up at town some time back and met her at the city gate, the woman responded in faith and fed Elijah first. But the loss of her son today may be too much for her to endure. And so Elijah is feeling deeply the distrust that she now has for him and for the God he represents. For Elijah, there was more at stake here than just this little boy. In this house, just like in Israel, God's honor and reputation are on the line. And so Elijah carries the boy to his prayer chamber, lays him on the bed, pleads with God, and then Elijah does something that is completely unprecedented. Verse 21 says, Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Now, it's not clear why he chose to stretch himself out on the boy. Uh, It's unusual because touching a corpse would have rendered Elijah unclean. But for one reason or another, he must have felt prompted by the Lord to do it. And so he did. And then the request he makes is unprecedented, 
Up to this point in Scripture, no one, no one has ever been raised from the dead. But that doesn't stop Elijah. His concern is only for God's glory and God's reputation. And so intensely and so purely does Elijah desire for God to be worshipped and adored. He is willing to ask God to do something in this moment that has never been done before. Oh Lord, let this boy's life return to him. And look at how God responds, verses 22 to 24. It says, The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. And Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. And he gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. God heard Elijah's prayer. And for the sake of his glory, and for the sake of his honor, and for the sake of his reputation, God answered Elijah's prayer with a yes, doing what had never been done before. And I don't think there are words adequate to describe what Elijah must have felt in that moment when the little boy's life returned and his body began to stir. There just aren't any words. Can you imagine how Elijah would have felt when he brought the boy down to his mother and heard her say, now I know, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. In a way, she's saying, Elijah, I believe that God is great and your message is true. Not only would this have stirred Elijah's love for the boy, but I also think it would have stirred Elijah's hopes for his people people of Israel. Maybe the Lord would revive the nation and bring them back to life just as he had revived this boy and brought him back to life. Maybe. Maybe. Before I close, let me give you four brief reminders about grief that might be helpful for you. Just four quick reminders. The first is this. Grief is the sorrow we feel Anytime we experience a significant loss, grief is the sorrow we feel anytime we experience a significant loss. And certainly, we feel that whenever someone we love dies. But, but, grief can also easily come at the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, or the loss of a limb. We feel it when a child moves to college or when we move to a new home or when we move out of a career and into retirement. We can feel it when we lose an important athletic event, when we realize that our youthfulness is gone, or when our body no longer works the way we want it to. We can feel it when our career doesn't go as we planned, when our marriage doesn't go as we dreamed, or when the diagnosis from the doctor doesn't come back as we had hoped. The need for grieving can be stirred by so many different things at different times, not just when we experience death, but anytime we face disappointment. Second reminder is this, and this one is an important one, friends. Jesus grieved. Jesus grieved. And it is important for us to acknowledge this truth. 
One author writes, when Lazarus died in John 11, Jesus was deeply stirred and he wept with the mourners. And Jesus knew that Lazarus was about to be raised from the dead. But that didn't stop Jesus from genuinely grieving with Mary and Martha. On another occasion, when Jesus learned that John the Baptist had been executed, he withdrew to a private place to grieve. And then later in the Garden of Gethsemane, with the weight of his coming crucifixion bearing down on him, Jesus said he was deeply grieved, swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. We need to remember that Jesus grieved, and here's why. Because if anyone thinks that grieving is a sign of weakness or immaturity or a lack of faith, I want to assure you this morning, it is none of those things. It's none of those things. Jesus himself grieved, which means that you too have full permission to grieve as you need to. Third reminder is that grief is cyclical. Grief is cyclical. It means it comes and goes. There's waves. There's an ebb and flow to it. Just when you think it's over, a fresh wave will sometimes crash on you. I've experienced this myself. I remember a few years back, I was going through some grief of my own. And uh, I told a friend that I'm doing much better these days when he asked, which was true in that moment. But within about 36 hours of making that statement, a fresh wave of grief washed over me. And I was reminded again, oh, there's an ebb and flow to this. There's going to be way multiple waves of this. And if you want to help people who are grieving, we need to understand the cyclical movement of this. So that when our friend or family member gets hit by another wave of grief, we don't want to conclude that the person is regressing. They're not regressing. That's not a step backwards. This is perfectly normal. Grief comes and goes in cycles. There is an ebb and a flow. And, and when we pray for our grieving friends, we want to pray that each wave will be a little bit easier for them to handle. And it'll just get easier and easier each time they go in and out of that. Fourth and finally, grief takes time. Grief takes time. More time than most people think. So give people time and permission to grieve, sometimes for a lot longer than you expect. Be patient and compassionate. Be gentle and kind. And unless, and unless you are a formally trained per, you know, counselor, unless you are formally trained as a counselor, don't ever tell a grieving person to move on just because you think it's time that they do so. Don't tell them that. Everyone experiences grief differently, and each person will move through grief at different speeds. And so people often need more time than we think that they do. So give them, give them time, give them permission to grieve. The experience of loss and grief is universal. The need for grieving can be triggered by a variety of things. And every single one of us will experience it at some time in our life, probably more than once. Part of what it means for us to be the church together is that we embrace grieving people 
We come alongside them and we walk through their grief with them so that no one has to walk through it alone. And Elijah's experience with the widow's son gives us some helpful insight and lessons into how to do that so that we can serve people around us well. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer and then dismiss the service. So why don't you stand with me for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning for the gift of your word. We're so grateful for it. And for all that you have revealed to us in it, Elijah's life, as we continue to go through it, just instructs us today about comforting the grieving. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see pain in people's lives around us and give us hearts of compassion so that we might walk beside people in pain, that we might serve them, we might show them the love of Christ. May we continue to grow, to become a people who embrace men and women in pain. May your spirit work through your word and through your people to bring genuine healing to the deep pain in people's hearts. And may your presence be felt. May your joy be felt. And may your name be praised anytime two or three of us are gathered together. Lord, you are our God and we are your people and we love you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.